Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro physique athlete, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Max Coleman, who works with Brad Schoenfeld and has done a lot of research recently in the field of hypertrophy science, which is exactly what we want to hear. So we have him on the show today to talk about a few recent studies. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so maybe first, Max, just a little note about yourself in terms of the people who don't know you. Yeah, so uh, you covered it pretty well. I uh, I just graduated from the Lehman Human Performance Master's program uh, under Dr. Schoenfeld, uh, studying basically hypertrophy. Uh, so just how can we manipulate training variables to get people as jacked as possible, essentially, uh, is my primary area of interest. Yeah, so all things hypertrophy, I'm, I'm good to talk about today. Sweet. So we're going to be going over a couple of studies that Max has been involved in. And the first one is on drop set training and the study was called muscular adaptations in drop set versus traditional training a meta-analysis i think this one's a particular interest to me because i love using drop sets so maybe if you could just very briefly go over what you guys did and what you saw yeah so it was um it was a meta-analysis course that they offer at Lehman college where you that the, the entire course is just you and whoever else is enrolled in the class and i think it was three or four other people at the time uh, that, that we did the drop set meta analysis where the whole class is just you going through the process of writing a meta. So really valuable class there. And we ultimately decided to do it on the hypertrophic and strength adaptations that you see from drop sets compared to traditional training, right? So uh, studies, we, we included studies that directly measured hypertrophy and directly or and or directly measured strength looking at individuals doing straight sets so you know your typical three by four by eight to twelve reps compared to individuals doing uh drop set training so for those of you who don't know which is unlikely any of you listening to this podcast but drop sets are where you perform an exercise to to or close to failure uh, and then immediately drop anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of that load and then take yourself to failure on that exercise again uh, before doing either subsequent drops or just stopping right there, right? Um, so we found a total of five studies that met our inclusion criteria for this study. And we found, just uh, get right to the results, we didn't find much of a difference at all in measures of strength or hypertrophy. Now, mm. there's obviously a lot of caveats to that that I'm sure we'll get into here in a second. Uh, but the one really interesting thing that we did find is that some of the studies actually uh, measured the amount of time that each workout took. And they found that individuals uh, achieved the same exact hypertrophic and strength, again, caveats there, uh, that the traditional training groups did, except they did so in a much shorter period of time, a significantly shorter period of time, which suggests that uh, drop sets may be a really good time efficient way of training for hypertrophy or strength, again, caveats. Uh, but if, if you're pressed for time, which I imagine someone who's a practicing MD would uh, need to use the, those type of intensity techniques uh, very often. So yeah, real brief over there. We can go a little bit deeper into that if you want, but super briefly, uh, drop sets really great for saving time and seemingly get most, if not all, of the same hypertrophy that traditional sets do. Yeah, I find that very interesting for sure, particularly from the efficiency standpoint, as you mentioned. I think the first question that comes up is in terms of finding that sort of equivalent dose how would you go about equivocating you know drop sets versus traditional sets if you were to count sets for the week yeah so uh counting volume for drop sets can be a little bit difficult because uh, you know then you have a conversation about uh do drops does each drop count as its own individual set mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to say um so there's not i can't give you like a really good definitive uh, evidence-based answer so I can give you my my best guess essentially so I just want to I just want to throw that caveat out there so no one thinks that I'm, I'm basing this off of direct literature mm -hmm. um, Zach Robinson had an amazing uh, analysis of this he works over at data different strength so he he did an analysis of my study and honestly talks about it better than I do so you should definitely have him on uh, just in general he's an awesome researcher um, but he talked about efficiency per set and efficiency per workout and how there's kind of a difference there and I think I'm inclined to agree with him in that Drop sets may be more efficient uh, on a workout by workout basis, but set by set basis, I don't know if you can necessarily say that that third drop, you know, let's say I do 10 
curls uh, at 20 pounds and go down to 15 pounds and do 10 more and then drop down to 10 pounds and do 10 more, right? I, I don't know if I would say that that last set of curls that I'm doing with 10 pounds is as effective as, let's say, a third set after two straight sets, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, sorry. So big caveat there. So the really the, the the takeaway is that you might need more drops and more more sets to get the same uh, hypertrophic stimuli uh, as straight sets if you're trying to do drop sets like all the time. Um, okay, that all that out of the way. How do I go about counting sets for drop set training and compare that to like straight set training? So obviously straight sets are super easy. One, two, three sets, not, nothing to worry about there. With drop sets, I think the first set, obviously, we'll just count that as a regular set because well, why wouldn't we, right? And then each additional drop after that, I think, and again, this is kind of just conjecture and, and, and based on some conversations I've had with other trainers, uh, probably about 0.5 sets, so about half a set. So let's say I do three drop sets, like I do a drop set, I do a set, and then two additional drops after that. We would call that about two sets, not three sets, if that makes sense. So that's generally how I go about tracking volume when I do uh, drop sets. But again, uh, it's, a, it's an intensity technique that I'm not using super frequently. So it's counting the sets for that. It's not something I worry about super often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you said, it's more about the overall workout that the you can. I mean, these studies basically looked at the total efficacy in the end. Right. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily. Exactly it's hard to quantify exactly what's happening but yeah just as a general rule like a, um if you compared those like the two protocols what would they have compared say in terms of straight sets versus the drop set protocol yeah so so there uh so full disclosure i wrote this study or uh, we wrote this study uh well over a year ago so it's not super fresh on my mind just to keep that in mind and there was a total of five studies that we analyzed and there was a bit of heterogeneity between them. So it wasn't always like, okay, these, this group did three sets of eight to 12 on the dumbbell curls. So this group is gonna do uh, three drop sets uh, of eight to 12 on the drop. So some of them, I believe two or three were volume matched and the other ones were not. Uh, so that's to say that even those individuals doing drop sets may have been doing less or more volume and still achieving the same results, right? Which is really interesting. Mm. Um, but the way that they went about it, some of them did like, uh, they equated volume as like reps times weight times associated volume load instead of just mm. sets, straight sets. Um, so even parsing it out from how they did it uh, in, through an individual study is a little bit difficult because uh, one, the drop set protocols that they used were kind of different uh, uh, between each study. And then also the, the thing that they were actually comparing it to uh, was different as well. Uh, we all, all of them had some degree of straight sets, but uh, there were also studies that looked at like pyramid training. So, you know, like do it, starting heavy, going light and going back down to heavy. Uh, so there was just a lot of different ways in which they were comparing drop sets in, in this meta-analysis uh, or throughout all of those different studies in this meta-analysis. So uh, how they went about uh, accounting for volume, uh, we would have to go through each study and that would be, uh, I don't think it's, it's super worth it because I don't think that it, it really adds anything as far as what they were comparing. And they just showed uh, even when volume wasn't equated, similar results in a shorter period of time. Yeah, that's what I find interesting. Well, that they they volume matched some of them at all, actually. So, okay, so for some of them, they actually kept doing drop sets until they reached the same amount of volume. That, yep, that makes exactly. a lot of sense. But it's, yeah, I think that's even more interesting the ones that didn't, right? Where hmm. you didn't necessarily hit the same volume. I think that is, sorry, so what? making you think about you know the other mechanisms at play like metabolic yeah. stress yeah and we'll we'll touch on that in the so there's another that that plays into some studies that are on deload literature that i'm sure we'll get into here soon so yeah i think i think uh when you see similar results without volume being matched uh super closely it, it that lends itself really well to well just just more questions being asked right because considering that we typically think of volume as the driver of hypertrophy right i don't think people are saying that as much anymore um, but when you have studies come out showing more growth with less volume or similar growth with less volume, that definitely starts, uh, light bulbs start going off for sure. Yeah. Mm, that particularly is attractive to me. I, I really like drop sets for a couple of reasons, mainly because of that time saving benefit where people could just kind of tack it on at the end of the, their main sets and particularly because it doesn't <clears throat> necessarily have to impact the productivity of the sets before. Like if you just add it on at the end of your last set for a muscle group for the day. Yeah, 
Yeah. And they're fun. <laughs> they're just super fun also. Like I just, there's something about uh, running the rack. I suppose a lot of people call it where you just, you start at one end and you just go all the way until you're curling five pounds and you just look like a silly goose. But yeah, they're incredibly fun, not to mention time-saving for sure. Yeah. And I find it's a little bit less mentally intensive than say doing my reps where you're trying to keep the weight up or rest pause sets where you're trying to keep the same weight, but you're just taking small breaks in between. And I also suspect it is a little bit less fatiguing because you are dropping the weight uh, you're putting a little bit less stress on connective tissue. So it's something that I use personally to work around things like chronic tendonitis and other issues where I know that I can get a bit more stimulus through that metabolic stress route without having to crush heavy weights necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to like uh, BFR training. So blood flow restricted training for those of you who don't know. Um, it's just a uh, it's just another tool in the toolbox that can be really beneficial for anyone looking to grow muscle throughout an entire career. Cause like you said, yeah, do three by five to 10 can be really tough on the elbows, obviously. So truncating that into a single 90 second set where you're have, getting to use, I don't know, 50% of the weight you normally would, it can be really beneficial for sure. Yeah. I'm not confident saying that it's going to save your joints. Don't, don't go out there saying that uh, Max Coleman said that drop sets are better for your joints than, than traditional training, but it's, it's just a really great tool in the toolbox for sure. Mm -hmm. People showing up to doctors saying Max Coleman did it to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did, I did three by 20 drop sets and now my elbows flare up all the time and it's all, it's entirely Max Coleman's fault. In terms of the actual drops themselves, how much load was dropped? Uh, so, like I said, it was kind of different uh, yeah, study yeah, yeah. to study, um, but it, uh, on average, it's, it was anywhere from 10 to 20 percent, I believe. Again, I wrote this was written well over a year ago, so I would have to go check exactly. Um, but if memory serves, I think it was around 10 to 20 percent per drop. And remember that that's going to uh, it's going to change uh, depending on what exercise you're doing. Right. So it's it's a lot more difficult to drop like 10 or 15% on lateral raises, right? You're probably gonna have to drop a little bit more than that. So like, for instance, like I'm going for from 20 pounds on, on lateral raises to like 10 pounds, that's obviously a 50% drop, but for a muscle as small as the Delta, it actually makes a lot of sense, right? Um, as opposed to like, let's say I'm doing pin loaded leg press. I say pin loaded because that's just a really efficient way to do drop set training. Otherwise you have to get up and take a bunch of weight off and stuff. That you can do much more incremental weight uh, drops and because you're just, first of all, the, the musculature that you're using is much more robust and much larger, and it's just easier. Like dumbbells down to 17.5 aren't super common in most gyms, but most selectorized pin equipment, you can do very small incremental drops on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sweet. So moving on, I want to go over a couple other studies today while we have time and Please. give the audience just a nice little overview. But the other one I wanted to talk about was study called progressive overload without progressing load, the effects of load or repetition progression on muscular adaptations. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah. So that, that was not actually my study. That was Daniel Plotkin's study. Who's another researcher out at Auburn. Uh, who's good. He's a PhD candidate at Auburn right now under Dr. Mike Roberts. I highly recommend having him on your podcast. He's a genius and he just conducted a great study on uh, glute hypertrophy. Um, so yeah, that was that was actually his thesis at Lehman, where he took a group of uh, around 50 people uh, and placed them into one of two groups, either a a reps group or a load group. So you we took individuals and they either progressed each week by adding load to the bar or adding reps to reps to the squats that they were doing or leg extension, what have you, right? Um, and we essentially took them through an eight week training program and tested to see if there was any differences in strength or hypertrophy, as well as some other uh, measures as well, uh, following the program, right? And similar here, super interesting findings, not really anything different as far as hypertrophy is concerned. Slight benefits uh, in strength, obviously, to those in the load group over the reps group, and uh, very, very slight, almost negligible benefits in muscular endurance to those in the, in the reps group, obviously. Uh, so super straightforward. Obviously, we can delve into that a little bit more if you'd like to, uh, but it lends itself well to the double progression model where both adding reps to your lifts each week and adding weight to the bar each week are both very viable options if you're looking to get as jacked as possible. Yeah. What was the what was the rep range that they did again? 
So obviously the rep range changed between groups. So those in the load group, we, we, we didn't add load to the bar each week, right? It was to keep them in the eight to 12 rep range. So some weeks, if they were incapable of, of meeting that rep range, we obviously weren't going to add weight to the bar. Um, but on average, individuals in the eight to 12 rep range uh, in the load group would have weight added to keep them in that range. Uh, Cause like, you know, they, they still start out at 135. They come in the next week, they, they did 15 on the first set. Okay. We add a little bit of weight to the bar to keep them in that eight to 12, as opposed to those in the reps that maybe did 12 at 135 on the squat the first week, 15, 17, 20 week, week after week, week after week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. I think that's very practical. You know, and particularly because there's so many different ways of going about progressive overload, right? You have progressing weight, sets, reps, and it's right now all this, the all this is just practice, you know, personal practice that like really changes across uh, athlete and trainer. Yeah, definitely. And I think it lends itself well to just real, like it's just so oftentimes when we first get involved in like evidence-based stuff we really want there to be a difference between groups because we want research to tell us exactly what to do so like me 10 years ago or me seven years ago i really wish that study had shown that weight added to the bar was better than reps because then i'm like oh i know exactly what to do don't add reps add weight right now uh, seven years later i actually really like that that showed no difference because now it gives me a lot more autonomy as a trainer gives me more autonomy as a coach and an athlete myself uh to know that oh well i only have access to these 20 pound dumbbells i don't have to be super worried that i'm not going to grow my biceps because i can't add five pounds to the to, to the dumbbells each week you know what i mean so i think that uh it lends itself really well to situations where you may not have a bunch of equipment so you can only add reps uh, and, and, and other situations as well, obviously. So yeah, super cool findings there for sure. Yeah. I'm curious to see what would happen as you extrapolate to higher rep ranges, right? Like the classic question is if I just did pushups for my chest and only progress in reps, mm -hmm. how far could I get? Yeah. So obviously there's a limit, right? Yeah. And we, the, the, the study was only eight weeks. So who knows if we'd gone to 16 weeks, maybe we would have shown like, okay, these people are doing 116 reps sets uh, in, the, in the barbell back squat they're probably not getting a great quad stimulus no 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 doubt right or at least they're not giving a very uh, robustly hypertrophic quad stimulus at the very least right mm -hmm. uh, so it's certainly possible however we did have individuals so just to add a little bit of uh, context here we started by taking the 10 rep max on each slip so it was the, the barbell back squat the leg extension the seated calf raise and the leg press calf raise and we got 10 rep maxes for each individual before mm -hmm. we even randomized them to a group right um, so there were some individuals in the rep group who started with a 10 rep max in the squat and ended with a 50 rep max in the squat. And we had a subject, uh, maybe more than one, but certainly one that I remember who got up to 50 reps, uh, and still grew pretty significantly. So, wow. um, yeah, the, the, the argument is definitely there, but keep in mind. So we all, we, we often talk about how you can grow muscle in the 30 to, you know, 85 ish percent one rep max range, right? 30% of your one rep max is an inordinate number of reps, right? It's it's not usually 30 reps, which is you often often times mm -hmm. hear people say like, you know, five to 30 reps is a good is a good range for growing muscle. But it seems like that it actually is uh, significantly higher than that than, than 30. Now, there's practical issues with doing sets of 50, obviously, but you can still if, if it's your only option, you can still grow a lot of muscle from doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's painful once you start going higher. Uh, I can't even imagine. So in that drop set study, one of the one of the groups was it was a high load, low load versus drop set group, right? And one of the low load groups, or the average rep range for the low load groups was oh goodness, like a hundred and four reps on the curl per set. So they, I mean, these are hundred rep sets, and this and this these group this this group grew pretty substantially Real. these arms grew pretty substantially yeah i can't even i don't know how they got that fast in the ethics committee but yeah it was, it'd be tough for sure <laughs> yeah it's like a throwback to the old the old bodybuilding books you know where you see these weird intensity techniques like hundreds or like 70s on an exercise which is crazy but yeah i mean i still usually recommend for people stuck at home who don't have equipment to load up a backpack or, or like a little suitcase with something to to make it easier on yourself ultimately 
Yeah, yeah. And then there's even more than that is like, not even more than that. But in addition to that, like there's other techniques as well. So like, let's say I'm doing push ups, and I get to the point where I'm doing three by 50. And it's just like, this is boring at this point. Uh, I can put a backpack on for sure. And that's a great way of adding load. But I can also change where my feet are, I can change the elevation of my feet to make it more difficult or, or increase the the upper pec activation of, of that set, right? Or I can widen my grip, I can elevate my hands so that I'm able to get a deeper stretch. Like there's a bunch of different ways that you can do this without weight as well, which are all very viable options for getting as jacked as possible, which I think I'm, is going to be the new, my new motto. Essentially. I've said that like four times. I apologize. <laughs> so have your tagline. All right. So yeah, now moving on to the juice, we're going to talk about Max's deload study. So this was called getting more from doing less the effects of, a one-week deload period during supervised resistance training on muscular adaptations. Yeah, so uh, this is now the third podcast I've been on where someone has said the title of my study to me. Now this is the third time where I'm like, why did I name that? Like that is a novel and a mouthful of a title for a study. So I definitely should have truncated that. Uh, but yeah, so this was my thesis. So that was Daniel's thesis that we just talked about. This is my thesis now, um, where... I was just interested to see if the effects of deloads are as great as everyone talks about them, as great as everyone says, right? Uh, so there's a lot of people going around talking about how deloads are, are really good for injury prevention, how they will ultimately lead to more growth, um, and how you know there's a bunch of psychological benefits to deload as well. Um, but the, the research out there is very limited in this regard. So we have two studies uh, by Ogasawara et al., who's an incredible researcher out of Japan, uh, where he, so I'll just talk about the most recent one because they're almost identical studies, one's just longer, uh, where he took, I believe it was 14 men, uh, untrained individuals, and put them through six months of resistance training. Uh, I think it was two to three times a week in the bench press, and they were split into one of two groups, right? Either a group that trained continuously for the entire six-month period, or a group that trained with six weeks on, three week off paradigms throughout that six-month period as well. And they found almost no differences between groups as far as strength or hypertrophy. Now, the caveat to that is that they did find a slight benefit to those that trained continuously. It just didn't reach statistical significance, right? That's a whole can of worms. Uh, but that led me to want to do my study, which is a little bit more ecologically valid. Because, uh, for instance, they only used one. They had 14 subjects, which is not a super robust study. Um, they only trained in the bench press and the periods that they took off of the gym were like three weeks long. So just a little bit longer than what is typically used for a deload, right? Mm -hmm. So for my study, uh, the goal, the impetus there was to create some sort of deload study design that was a little bit more in line with what individuals are actually doing in the real world, right? So for that, we took 50 individuals. Uh, we, we started with 50 and we ended with 39 because there's always dropouts in study designs like this where you're essentially torturing people for an hour a day, right? Um, so we had 39 individuals uh, with an average training experience of about four years and placed them into one of two groups, either a deload group or a traditional group, right? And the traditional group just trained for the entire nine-week period straight, no breaks whatsoever, right? As opposed to the deload group who trained for four weeks, took one week off in the middle, trained for four more weeks, right? And the, the workouts that they were doing were twice a week with us, lower body, five sets in the eight to 12 rep range on the Smith machine squat, the leg extension, the seated calf raise, and the leg press calf raise. And they also did uh, two upper body workouts as well uh, on their own that they logged and then sent to us to make sure that they were adhering, right? So long story short, uh, just we found no differences in hypertrophy between the two groups, but we did see a slight benefit in strength for those that trained continuously. We also saw some benefits on some psychological measures in those that trained continuously as well. Uh, so we, we conducted a readiness to train questionnaire, uh, which is like a seven question uh, survey where you ask individuals questions regarding their uh, perceptions of the fatigue that they're accruing throughout training, right? So pretty standard questions that you would actually ask one of your clients to see if they need to deload, right? How, how strong do you feel today physically? How mentally strong do you feel today? How was your sleep like last night? How hungry are you? Stuff like that, right? Uh, so we found, again, the slight benefits in strength, but also those in the traditional group actually saw no decrease in their motivation to train from week four to week nine, whereas those in the deload group actually did. 
Um, and the, those in the DLO group actually saw um, an increase in muscle soreness. Uh, and, and those in the traditional group that trained continuously actually saw a decrease in muscle soreness from week four to week nine. So I just threw a ton at you there. I, I'm sorry, it's kind of a lot of word vomit there. But uh, if you want to delve into any of those a little more deeply, I'm happy to do so. Yeah, so first of all, the thing I was curious about was the level of experience of the subjects. Yeah, so so in order to qualify to be in the study, so one of the inclusion criterions for or cri the one of the inclusion criterions, I never know how to say that correctly, my apologies, but you had to have at least one year of lower body training experience, which means you had to be training your legs at least once a week uh, consistently for the last year. So like I said, we had an average training experience of about four years, which means we had a lot of subjects who had only been training for one year. We had some subjects that have been training for over 10 years. And we had a lot of subjects who've been training for like, you know, a normal intermediate range, like five years or so, right? Um, so that, that that was the average training experience, right? So I, I don't remember the the individual data points for all 50 subjects, but it, it, it averaged out to just over, I believe, four years of training experience. Yeah, so a pretty broad spread. For sure, yeah, yeah, I think so. Dr. Schoenfeld talks about this often, how he wants his samples. So like, it would be really nice if we had 50 Dr. Swoles uh, uh, in, in the study. So then we could extrapolate our findings to individuals who are really interested in research, right? Which are the Dr. Swoles of the world, the people that are looking to take their physique to the next level constantly. But that's not an option, mostly because Dr. Swoles of the world and, and, and other bodybuilders, they're not just like, willing to change their training. I got a contest I got to train for. I can't, I can't let you use me as a guinea pig, right? It's very yeah, understandable. Fuck that. Um, exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly. What if, exactly. So like, what if the deload showed a negative and you were put in that and then it ultimately hurt your, your training career? That's obviously not something that's an option, but what is an option is having a group of individuals that are very indicative of like the real, like a gym. Like if you go to your average gym, we want our samples to look very representative of the people you would see in that gym. So we do have people with like 15 plus years of training experience. And we do have people that are not noobs, not like completely new to training, but still in the novice stages of lifting, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, while still having at least a year of training experience. So it lends itself well to being extrapolate, being able to extrapolate to broad gym audiences, but that obviously inhibits our ability to uh, extrapolate our findings to the Dr. Swoles of the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the training protocol sounded fairly intense, hey? Quite a bit of volume taken mm -hmm. to failure, and there was no hamstring work, though. That was the thing, right? Yeah, so so there was no <laughs> there was no hamstring work, which is obviously a tough sell to individuals, but uh, usually that's uh, that's glossed over when we're trying to sell the study to, to, to participants, right? Uh, but yeah, so for the number lovers out there, it equated to about 90 sets total uh, for the whole body, uh, but it was not evenly distributed through, we call, let's just call it a specialization phase for the, for the purposes of the study, right? So mm -hmm. 20 sets for the quads and 20 sets for the calves throughout the, for, for each week throughout the study. And then the remaining 50 sets were divided up against the, the, the rest of the upper body. So like 10 sets for chest, 10 sets for shoulders, 10 sets for back, 10 for biceps and triceps. Um, so yeah, so not like, oh my goodness, like a ridiculous training protocol, but definitely something that your average trainee would at least theoretically need a deload from. So five sets uh, in, in the eight to 12 rep range on, uh, or really 10 sets uh, in the eight to 12 rep range for the quads and calves taken to absolute failure uh, twice a week. That's a, that's a brutal protocol for sure. Once again, not anything to be like, okay, how did anyone walk out of this? But definitely something to be like, yeah, that would be a, a tough, a tough workout for sure. Yeah. Well, did you guys have an idea of the subjects training protocols before starting the program? No, we did not. We did not ask for training logs prior. Uh, so mostly because, once again, average gym population, the average gym goer probably has, even if they are training, they're like, if they're, even if they are logging their training, that log is usually not, not ideal. Right. It doesn't it doesn't give you a lot of insights into into their training. Uh, plus, once, once again, most people aren't logging their training super diligently. Right. Uh, most people just in general are not individuals like us who've dedicated such a large percentage of our lives to, to this field and this hobby. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to get a sense of, like, basically for these people relative to their own physiology, like, how frequently would they be deloading, you know, typically? Mm-hmm. I guess if you're aiming for someone, like, if the average was around four years-ish, then, um, yeah, kind of that five to nine weeks range is, is pretty reasonable. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so it's, it's obviously that's usually what's... Um, uh, that's usually the time frame that people will refer to. They usually say anywhere from like three to six weeks, I think is usually the, it's usually what I hear most commonly more so like four to six weeks, obviously. Um, so that's why we did the four also just cause it's a nice little even month of training week off another nice even month of training. Um, but yeah, so that's why we went with the four weeks, but our show, our findings kind of suggest that, you know, maybe four taking a deload every four weeks is certainly not, maybe not necessary, uh, but it's also maybe not super beneficial for strength if your deloads look like a week of detraining, which again is not necessarily the case for a lot of people. A lot of people's deloads look very different than that. Um, and there's a really cool study um, by Dr. Pack and Dr. Lee Bell out of Sheffield Hallam University looking at the deload practices of really advanced trainees and coaches. And, and they found that typically it's not a week of detraining, it's usually a week of much lower volume and intensity or some combination of, of lower volume and intensity, right? Uh, so that's just important to keep in mind is one of the limitations of this study is that we didn't do a deload per se, we did a period of detraining and there are some subtle nuances between and differences between those two things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it definitely sounds like the protocol was pretty intense because the question that comes up for me is, you know, trying to compare a very intense, shorter mesocycle versus a less intense longer mesocycle. I think one thing that comes to mind perhaps is that if you're cutting out hamstring work, some some hamstring type movements like hip hinges are very fatiguing and do count for a lot of systemic fatigue cost. For example, for myself, like right now, my RDLs are the, my main hamstring movement and those are by far the most difficult movement of the week. Like after even just well, like one heavy set, I'm like trash for the day. <laughs> Yeah, how many, if if you don't mind sharing, how many sets of RDLs are you doing a week? One set a week. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I'm two two for me, and that's, it's plenty, yeah. I think yeah. that's really interesting. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I find myself very sensitive to axial loading fatigue. It, mm-hmm. I think, obviously, this depends a lot on the person's level of experience. You know, like looking, I was just thinking, looking back, when I was in intermediate training, after around five years of training, I'd probably be deloading like once every seven weeks-ish, whereas now it's once every fourth week, where I will actually, like, after a tough workout with, like, that contains that set of RDLs, I'll actually feel, like, depressed, like, that day. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah. actually down, like, I'll have trouble speaking, like, straight sentences. <laughs> Yeah, you do. You do a set of RDLs, and your body essentially thinks that you just got in a terrible car crash. It, <laughs> I, I absolutely can empathize with that feeling. And then there also, I would like to say that when I say that you may not need a deload every four weeks, I'm speaking in the terms of the research that we have. And remember, those of you listening, research is always based on averages, right? Um, so there may have been individuals in the study that did benefit from taking a one week off of. Uh, even after four weeks, right? There may be some that it hurts, but on average, it didn't seem to make a huge difference. So I think that's something that uh, in general, I try to uh, preach to people is that research is great. It's it's incredible. I'm glad we have it. I made a career out of it. And it gives us a really good blueprint and idea for how we should conduct our training. But nothing is more valuable than anecdotal experiences, right? For the person who had that anecdote. So like, for instance, I wouldn't be like, Dr. Swole, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you deloading every four weeks? Didn't you read my study? It should be you didn't need to do that. That's That would be a really poor example of evidence-based coaching, right? Obviously, you know your body way better than any researcher could. And you know, uh, probably through trial and error and your own experience, that taking a deep break every four weeks is actually definitely beneficial beneficial for you, if that makes sense. So I definitely mm-hmm. would, I, I would not say that doing that is, is a bad thing by any means. I, I think that more people need to get better at listening to their bodies instead of relying on research to tell them what to do, which is going to be a through line uh, of this show, obviously. Yeah, and I think a big value, actually, of the study was showing that the hypertrophy was the same. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I actually find that more interesting. And actually, if ultimately, if 
that is true, even like if, you know, extended over longer time scales, I think that is actually advantageous to deload, like basically deload if you can get away with it, you know, kind of thing. Because the way I see it is that you get a, these indirect benefits of, you know, when you spend a bit less time in the gym, you can avoid psychological burnout. You can make room for like other things in your life. Ultimately, like I think sustainability is a huge issue. Um, and as serious as we are on, you know, listeners of this podcast, I think most people have either like a full time job, they're busy students, or they have families, right? And there is a lot. Of, I think there is a lot to say in trying to make space in your life where it's not saying like I'm going to be, you know, training twice a day, trying to optimize things and I have to do it yeah and and there's uh, sorry a little bit I I definitely agree I think that oftentimes we get caught up in these conversations about optimality uh that's like a huge buzzword these days um about making things optimal for for your life uh and for sorry making your training optimal for whatever your goals may be um but most people are, are normal people with families and friends and, and hobbies outside of, of lifting, obviously. And the most important thing is finding a way for exercise and fitness and this little hobby that we do that a lot of people take a little bit too seriously, in my personal opinion, make it fit your life and benefit your life. Resistance training and exercise is just, a, it's, it's a tool to make your life better, not something that you should change your life for. So I, I definitely couldn't agree. I think Anything we can do to get people to enjoy, find a way of exercising and being physically active that they enjoy is going to be far more beneficial than tweaking um, resistance training variables to find the most optimal way to hold your hand during a dumbbell curl, for instance. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other benefit, you know, in terms of warding off chronic aches and pains and overuse injuries, I also find that to be a very useful application and it's one of those things where i think a lot of you can you can go either way in the spectrum with this right there are going to be people who that like more of the average gym goer type who their issue is just not getting into the gym enough or just not being consistent but with a lot of people even listen to this show your problem is like more on the other end where you train so hard that you run into joint problems down the line or just having issues like i ultimately think that on a high level, injury and fatigue management are the biggest factors that like hold people back at the very end, oh, like getting to the last 1% of your genetic potential. And I think deloading is an important aspect. And it's something that I neglected in kind of my intermediate years where I just was going hard and trying to push a lot of volume and intensity and not taking breaks and still feeling the effects of those now or there are certain movements now that I like have trouble with like squats and benches that uh trigger my tendons yeah yeah so i can i can if i can piggyback off that for a second i, I um i think fatigue management i think so specificity overload and fatigue management i'm stealing this directly from the principles of hypertrophy hypertrophy training uh from dr isertel um or renaissance periodization um those three things specificity overload and fatigue management if you get those three down you're chilling you're, you're going to build an incredible physique, uh, assuming that your genetics allow for it, obviously. Um, and you, you, all the little bells and whistles of optimality are, are things that are going to take you that extra 5%. But if you get those those three things down, you have essentially mastered hypertrophy training as far as I'm concerned. And fatigue management is a huge aspect of that, obviously. So, for instance, how many, and we talked about over the long haul, right, why it being one of the most important things, how many people have we met in our day that have said, oh man, I would have been the next blank if it weren't for my bum knee or whatever it may be, right? So longevity and being able to manage those injuries, it's a lot of people like kind of discount it. Like, oh, if it weren't only for that one thing, that's like me saying, oh, if it weren't only for me being not six, seven, I would have been a really good NBA athlete, right? So I, I once again, I, I, I couldn't agree more that fatigue management is perhaps one of if not the most important variables for longevity in the sport of all sports but definitely bodybuilding mm -hmm. and then in terms of more practical applications it you know we're agreeing that there's a lot of individual variability and deal are something where it ultimately is going to be a case-by-case -case basis 
Do you have any suggestions for people in terms of figuring out when they should deload? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's obviously the most obvious one, sorry, there's the most obvious one is if you see performance detriments in your training. So if, if week after week you're seeing either stalls in performance or even more so if like rep numbers are going down at the same weight, <clears throat> something should be addressed. It's not necessarily that you have to take a, you know, quote unquote deload or a break from the gym, but something is happening there that needs to be addressed in order for you to uh, diminish some of that fatigue you've been accumulated so you can continue progressing those fitness characteristics, right? <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, so that's the most obvious one. And then there's a bunch of other ones that are a little bit more mm, subjective and um, uh, speculative, right? So for me, Training is my favorite part of the day. I look forward to it. I, I, when I finish training, I usually, the first thing I do is like, oh, what's tomorrow's workout again? I'm really excited. So for me, if I find myself being like, oh goodness, I have to work out tomorrow. I really don't wanna to go to the gym right now. That's, a, that's usually a bad sign for me that, that stress is a little bit too high. Maybe not even because of the gym, but just in general, stress in my life is too high and it's, mm. it's, it's keeping me from doing the thing that I love doing most. That's usually one that I'm like, okay, probably need a break. Now that doesn't work for everyone. Some people have to force themselves to go to the gym. So if you're someone who like doesn't enjoy training, that's obviously not a good factor. Uh, another one that I really like is just sensation during exercises. So if I am, let's say I'm doing bent over rows right now in my program, bent over dumbbell rows. And let's say for the first three weeks, I mean, my, my rear delts, my but my rhomboids, my lats, everything was just on fire from bent rows. My lumbar, my rectors were just were on fire, but in a good way, you know, like a really good, like stimulus to fatigue ratio sensation where you're getting all of that feeling in the muscles themselves. And let's say at week four, I'm like, you know, I'm kind of feeling this in my lumbar spine now, a little bit more in my rotator cuff, not so much in my lats and in my erectors. That's also usually a good sign. Not necessarily, again, that you need a deload, but that you maybe need to start addressing some of these factors that may be leading to this excess fatigue. So that's another one that I really like. And then just there's other like even really drastic ones, like if your sleep and appetite and just general mood state is 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 affected and it's kind of altered uh, and, and usually in a negative way, obviously. So you're, you're having trouble sleeping, you're not super hungry and, and you're just a little bit more irritable and maybe even that you're getting sick more frequently. That's those are usually good signs that you are pretty drastically overtrained. Uh, and it's probably a good time to take a small break or adjust things accordingly. Uh, but I would like to mention that uh, achieving an overtraining status in things like bodybuilding where, I mean, outside of contest prep, let's make that clear. So hypertrophy training in general, it's pretty hard. Uh, there's a lot of overtraining literature out there and it's it's the protocols that some of these individuals have gone through without achieving an overtraining state is just absurd things that you don't necessarily see in the over in, in the real world so i i don't want to um diminish the effects of deloads and the importance of deloads but be truly honest with yourself uh in assessing if you quote unquote need or have i hate using this term earned a deload or not right mm -hmm. um because the, the evidence just seems to suggest that, you know, you probably don't need one uh, after four weeks of training at the very least for the average individual, right? Uh, so those are just some good uh, things to look out for if you're thinking you need a deload or, or wanting to know how you should uh, judge it or if you don't need a deload. Yeah, I like that. And it's good to, you know, mention that there is a lot of variation between people and using these more subjective or calibrated measures are really useful because it gives you a better indicator of what's actually happening on the ground and yeah it's really hard to predict even based off of training experience right for myself i i think i'm on like the far end of being like accumulating a lot of fatigue quickly and you know i deload every fourth week and it was funny because back earlier like a few years ago i i started noticing that like I would have these cyclical bouts of depression where I just like would feel absolutely trash and have no motivation for anything. Um, and it took me a while to realize like, oh, it goes away when I deload. <laughs> it like happen. It always happens in the last few weeks of my mesocycle. I just need to deload a little earlier. And for myself, I like definitely noticed that the other components of life, you know, con contributing to stress adds a lot to overall systemic fatigue where I actually have to deload 
significantly more often now that I'm doing night shifts, particularly night shifts are the biggest drag on my my uh, stress levels as to compare to when I was, say, an undergrad student where all I had to do was lift and study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I yeah. kind of, oh, please. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I had a client this year who was, we was pre- we prepped him and he did great. He ended up coming second, um, getting peeled. And he's been training for a long time too, I think like 12 years or so. But I remember asking him, oh, when's the last time you took a deload? And he said, I haven't deloaded in a year. <laughs> like he'd been training straight. And I was like, well, I was a little shocked. And I'm like, well, how are you feeling? How's your training progress? How's your training motivation? He's just like, max, max, max. He's just like, I feel great. I'm just crushing it, still progressing on everything. Well, I'm, I'm like, well, let's just run run it straight through then, as long as yeah, you're feeling yeah. good. And he did great. Yeah, fatigue management is an, a, an umbrella term, right? And a deload is just a really, is, is a very small variable under that giant umbrella that is fatigue management. So, uh, it is possible to go a training career, uh, an entire decades-long training career, uh, without ever taking a deload. But does that mean that that person is not managing their fatigue? Of course not. It's also possible that that person like takes deload. I'm not. I'm, I'm trust this person. I'm not. I'm. I'm speaking about them in the abstract, obviously. But it's possible that that X person, whoever it may be, uh, is deloading, but they're just not calling it a deload. They don't. They may not know. They don't. They just. You know. They go on vacations every once in a while, and they don't train for a couple of days. Like that's a deload to them, right? Um. So yeah, I. I, I think that it, it is extremely individual, and uh, there are indiv- There are people who need breaks from training every three weeks, and and if they don't, yeah, they'll just. Uh, they'll. They'll get injured. And to piggyback off of what you were saying, um, I kind of joked earlier about doing a set of RDLs and your body thinks you got hit by a car. Uh, it's hyperbole, but it's not It's not ridiculous, right? It's kind of accurate as to how our body perceives stress. So like, for instance, your body doesn't know the difference between your significant other breaking up with you and an incredibly hard and challenging leg workout. In fact, you'll probably accrue way more stress uh, from that breakup than you ever would from a hard leg workout. So being mindful of outside stressors, night shifts at the hospital, whatever it may be, is extremely important when you're trying to manage your fatigue and ultimately build the best physique you can, obviously. So yeah, again, sorry, big tangent there. So thank you for letting me do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great to touch on. I think that's going to have a lot of application for people. I want to move on and just touch briefly on one last study. This was... Please fiber type specific hypertrophy with the use of low load blood flow restriction resistance training, a systematic review. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about uh, your findings. So, yeah. So basically like, uh, unfortunately the findings aren't super cool from this study because it's just very much, um, uh, there's just, there's a lot to be asked from, from the studies that we have in this regard. So there were a lot who theorized that there may be fiber type specific hypertrophy when using BFR, right? You might see, so you, your muscles are comprised of a bunch of different fibers, but very simply put, it's mm-hmm. very easy to think of two, two types, right? You have your slow twitch and your fast twitch fibers, your type one, your type two. Um, and type ones just don't grow as well as type twos just on average. Um, and we there were individuals who thought that those type ones may grow more uh, if you use things like BFR, because there was some, there's some data to suggest that, right? Uh, but basically, the findings from our study suggest that, like, maybe, uh, but ultimately, we, we need a lot more research to see if that's the case. Uh, that's not to say that just because they don't, they're not necessarily good for type 1 hypertrophy doesn't mean that they're just a tool to throw out. Again, BFR, just like drop sets we kind of talked about earlier, now it's the the, the, the mirror of that, are a super beneficial tool. Let's say, like, uh, if your elbows are hurting anytime you go above 20 pounds, but you usually can curl 50 pounds for sets of 10, mm-hmm. well, you can now use BFR to use 15 pound dumbbells and get an incredible stimulus to your biceps from them, right? So um, again, not super robust findings there as far as like if or if it doesn't selectively uh, hypertrophy your type one fibers, uh, but it's still a really valuable tool. And it's definitely not hurting to use BFR. So not only is is it potentially benefiting you by growing these type one fibers more than traditional training would. But even if it doesn't do that, it's certainly not leading to less hypertrophy than traditional training does either way. So uh, not not anything super interesting from that study to to talk about other than the practicality of, of BFR training, which is just a really great tool for, for anyone who's looking to get as jacked as possible, in my opinion. 
Yeah, and I just find BFR interesting because it's a very sort of targeted example of a mechanistic tool, you know, where mm -hmm. you are targeting more so that metabolic stress pathway when we were trying to get academic about hypertrophy. And it has a lot of indirect benefits as I see it, where whenever you're able to train with lighter loads and get similar hyper, hyper, hypertrophy outcomes, like we were talking about with drops at training, I get very interested because it, you start having these alternate avenues that you can pull when you need. Yeah, how great was BFR training during COVID? I mean, like for those individuals that, who had access to, and, and most people, you have access to BFR training, even if you don't have a BFR like specific cuff that you buy off Amazon, you can find things to occlude different portions of your body. Now, look, I am not telling your audience, I want this to be on the record. I'm not telling people to take a super tight rubber band or tourniquet and put it on their arms so they can get a great pump. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a doctor, but so don't do that. Uh, but it, how great was it for us to have access to things like BFR during COVID where we weren't able to go do go to a gym to do traditional type training, right? So that's just uh, one practical example of why these tools are incredibly beneficial. Even if you're someone who never has to worry about injury, you're just the luckiest person alive and, and resistance training doesn't injure you at all. It's still a really valuable thing to to, to know how to use. Uh, I think Alberto Nunez and, and Jeff Alberts were just talking about this and and, and I, I don't wanna misquote them, but I believe Alberto Nunez was saying like, it's basically as value, understanding BFR and understanding how to use it uh, for your training is just like understanding how to track macros, right? It's just another very beneficial tool that as a bodybuilder and as someone trying to get as jacked as possible, you're probably going to have to use at some point because you probably are going to run into like nagging elbow and shoulder and, and injuries of the like, right? So uh, yeah, I'm also very interested in BFR. Plus you get sick, gnarly pumps from it. I mean, skin splitting bicep pumps from it. So it's just super fun in that regard too, especially if you're a weird masochist like we are. Yeah, exactly. Accurate. And yeah, like for myself going into my contest prep season last year, I was, my like knees were killing me. I had really bad tendinosis in my patella tendons from squatting. And I ended up running BFR on like all my quad training for the entire prep and like basically had the best legs ever. So it's definitely Ugh. a very robust tool and like it was very painful, obviously, but I can't even just, imagine, yeah. man. I can't imagine <laughs> yeah, BFR man, training squats. exclusively during yeah. contest prep. Like <laughs> you know, that's that'll build some grit for sure. If residency wasn't enough for you to build some serious uh, grit, that that definitely did it for sure. That's that's nonsense. But congratulations. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, that was Great, man. Hearing what's going on, what's new coming down the pipeline that you're excited about? Uh, so there's some there's some cool studies coming out of uh, Lehman's lab here uh, soon. Um, I can't delve super deeply into them, but some cool stuff on supersets, potentially some cool stuff on selective uh, or um, sp hypertrophy specific selective movements. So looking at to see if like maybe the rec fem does grow more or if the soleus does grow more from seated calf raises, uh, leg extensions versus leg presses, stuff like that. So a lot of cool research coming out of uh, Dr. Schoenfeld's lab at Lehman because he has a bunch of really, really great students there uh, right now, all about to conduct some really cool theses. Yeah. And then obviously I just, we I briefly touched on Daniel Plotkin who just had a really cool study looking at hip thrust versus squats that I'm sure that you and most of your audience have seen. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff. And, and Milo's obviously working on his like giant multi-school uh, ROM study. So yeah, there's a lot of, it's an exciting time to be an exercise science researcher. The, the field is essentially equivalent of like a three month old baby in terms of research. So uh, it's, it's a lot of new stuff and new rocks that are constantly being turned over. So a lot of cool stuff to, uh, a lot of cool stuff on the horizon to be uh, looking out for. Um, and yeah, as far as research that I am interested in, uh, I'm going to, I will be taking a break from direct research and like conducting studies myself. I'm still going to help out with the research that's going on at Lehman. Uh, but I will probably not be conducting any studies directly, at least any primary longitudinal studies where I'm in the lab training people for at the very least a year. So uh, nothing super cool coming from me, but a lot of cool stuff coming from uh, other researchers in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And then last fun question, how do you run deloads for yourself? Oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. 
Uh, no one's asked me that yet, I don't think, which is crazy. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, so funny enough, I actually started changing the way I did deloads before I started conducting this study. So it was in January or February, uh, data collection started in mid-February. And sometime in January, early February, I was just like, look, man, I, I used to take detraining weeks. So I would train for four to six weeks and I would take a week just off of training because I hate going to the gym and doing like deload stuff, which is like, you know, five or six RIR, one to two sets per exercise. It's just boring to me. I would rather do something more productive outside of the gym, right? So I would take like full seven day periods just completely off of training. Mm. And I just, I, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I just feel like I'm not, I don't need full seven days to feel recuperated to go back to the gym. So I was like, I got to stop that. And I can't make myself just do deload workouts in general. I just don't have the discipline to do it. So here's how I usually go about doing deloads for myself. I train for four to six to eight weeks, depending on just how I'm feeling and what, what type of, of situation I'm in, whether it be cutting, bulking, specialization phases, what have you. And then I, as soon as I feel like I need it, I take three to four days just off. I just don't work out at all. Uh, I just, I focus more on whatever work I'm doing that day, or I just, you know, I'm on vacation, whatever it may be. Right. And then I just get right back to it. I usually start with slightly lower volumes, right? Because you don't want to just jump right back into a really high volume program right after taking four to five days off, whatever have you. Um, and then, yeah, it's it's it's. I wish I had some fun, fantastical answer about about how I go about structuring my deloads and all all the variables that I track to make sure that I'm doing so optimally. But realistically, it's just couple days off here and there just to, you know, kind of let any like nagging things like my, if my shoulders bothering me a little bit now, like I'll take a couple of days off until that feels a little bit better and then I'll get right back to training. So that's usually how I go about running deloads is when I feel like I need them. And when, when my clients feel like I need them to get kind of a, what I was talking about earlier, get better at understanding when your body's telling you, you need a break, right. And get better at understanding when your body's telling you you're ready for hard training. Listen to yourself and uh, your your body is going to tell you way more than any research paper ever could about yourself. Yeah. So basically your training week looks different from mesocycle to mesocycle then, like depending on how long your deload was. Like if you only deloaded for a few days, you'll be starting your meso in the middle of the week. Yeah. So I am a little bit type A. I, I do like that perfect Monday as much as I tell, <laughs> yeah. I tell my clients not to. Uh, I do like a perfect Monday. So I, I, oh man, you <laughs> caught me. I do try <laughs> gotcha. to make it so that I start, I do try to make it so that I start my workouts on a Monday. So like I, if I'm like halfway through uh, okay. week six I of see. a training program, I'm like, okay, let's just stop this rest. And then we'll go into, we'll start on Monday. So yeah, I do, I do try and achieve that perfect Monday. I, I, as, 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 as stupid and irrational as I understand that it is starting a, a new workout program, a new mesocycle on a Wednesday, it's never going to happen for me. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know. It's just that stupid lizard brain of mine. So yeah, I, I do try and wait for Monday, but that's not advice. Don't do it. In fact, that's directly the antithesis. And antithesis of, of the advice that I would give, which is tomorrow is better than Monday, obviously. So yeah, you got me. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I think there is value in that, right? Where having that predictability, I find that really useful where the the main use, I mean, of deloads in my perspective is sustainability in your life, right? And having a break mm -hmm. from the gym and being able to book things, book more things and for just uh, like your career or social activities so yeah having some predictability i find value in so anyways that was a great chat man it's great to hear you know we got to touch on a whole lot of things and it's really interesting seeing all this coming out and it's such an evolving field as you mentioned it's really like the the, sh the fireworks are going off right in the hypertrophy field and i find it just most interesting seeing how many of these more null results we're getting right where it, the, these variables don't matter as much as we may have thought and that people used to put emphasis on, particularly when the science field was just getting going. Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, physics and physics and biology and chemistry, they've been around for uh, 
centuries, right? Obviously, uh, but exercise science didn't get its real didn't get its feet under itself until like the 1960s. So yeah, we we have turned over a ton of big rocks, which is why we're we're seeing more null results now because now we're starting to investigate those pebbles a little bit more and the sand a little bit more to see you know some more the more mm, nuanced training variables, obviously. So yeah, again, null findings can be a little frustrating if you're someone who wants research to tell you exactly what to do. But if you're someone who takes pride and enjoys the autonomy of training, then these null results can be really great, right? Let's take the deload thing, for example. If you, if you, if your family's like, hey, we're going on vacation and we're not gonna have access to a gym, you don't have to worry about like losing all of your muscle now, which is an incredible feeling in my opinion. So yeah, I, I love these null findings to giving me a lot more, um, I hate to use the word autonomy again, but a lot more control over over my training. So, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely. Like everything, the things we talked about, drop sets, progression with reps, mm -hmm. deloading and BFR, you know, ultimately similar hypertrophy and just more tools in the toolbox. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. So where can people find you? Yeah. <clears throat> Oh, goodness, sorry about that. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Coleman at all. Uh, so Coleman.et.al. And uh, for the real nerds out there, it's just Max Coleman on ResearchGate. Keep up to date with the research that I'm doing and the research that I'm following as well. Um, yeah, though, so Instagram and ResearchGate are definitely my two primary uh, the social medias, if you can even call ResearchGate a social media. Awesome, man. I'll put those links in the description. And thanks for being on the show.